0: Today we have a special show in store for you. Seasoned investor and frequent Real Vision contributor, Miss Schneider joins me to talk about the pivotal trades that changed her life and launched a 40 year career as a trader. She started off as a special education teacher and after a friend introduced her to the trading floor, she didn't look back and quickly became one of the first female floor traders on the New York Commodities Exchange. I really enjoyed the conversation and I think you will too. Check it out. So great to have you on the show, Mish. Hi, Maggie. So great to see you. Let's get right into it. You're in New York, you're a teacher scraping by, and you meet this woman from Merrill Lynch who helps launch your career in trading. You instantly begin having success on the floor, and everything else takes off from there. When you look back at the trades you've executed, what was the first big one you made that really stands out as a winner? Take me through the process of executing the trade, and ultimately, why you decided to make it in the first place.
1: Well, I'd say my first trade was when, after Melody, her name was, introduced me down to the floor. She took me down to the World Trade Center, and she worked on the Coffee, Sugar, Cocoa Exchange. And when I went down there with her, it was like a smack in the head, like, oh my God, I'd always been in a school my whole life, from being a student to now being a teacher. And I had not seen anything about the real world at this point. I had a pretty sheltered life, actually. And so I went crazy. I was like, I have to work down here. I
0: have to figure it out. Did it seem exciting to you? Because I've been on trading floors in pits, and they could be scary, too, sometimes. What was it that made you feel like that?
1: It wasn't scary to me at all. I mean, if anything, I never even thought, oh, you're a woman. Come on. You know, I never like thought about that. I just thought like, wow, I can get to be very physical because there was a lot of physical activity, the standing and and then the running back and forth from the booth to the actual pit. I liked that. That appealed to me. But it wasn't really so easy to get on the floor. And it had nothing to do with me being a woman, by the way, because At the time when I went down there, there was this awareness of the glass ceiling and that there weren't really any women trading in the commodities exchange or actually even on the stock exchange too much at that point. So that was actually almost a foot in the door. What really was the sticking point was the fact that I was a teacher because there was that adage, those who can't teach.
0: Mm -hmm. So they figured,
1: what is she going to know? And she's a special ed teacher to boot. So um, I had to do a little bit of backdoor way in, and I got a job working for a marketing firm in commodities. They did a newspaper called the Public Ledger, which is a British paper, and it was based on the softs. So it, it reported on sugar and coffee and cocoa, and they wanted to figure out how to expand their subscription service in the United States. So this guy hired me. I had no marketing experience whatsoever, but he hired me to go to all the heads of research of all the top firms, including Merrill Lynch, and interview them on what would make them buy this paper. And then after I put together this whole report, they sent me to London. So now I'm like, by myself, going to London. I mean, it was the first time I'd ever even been on a plane.
0: Were you terrified or were you excited? I was both
1: I was both, especially when I got to, I was so excited. I mean, I think I was more excited than terrified. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a person that scares really easily, at least not things like that. Adventure has always been more thrilling than fearful. But I came back and I thought, maybe I should call all these guys I just went to see and tell them I'm looking for a job on the floor and I'll do anything. And so I got hired by Merrill Lynch and also Conti Commodities, which was the Futures Division of Continental Grain at the same time. And actually, Continental Grain was offering me a little bit more money. And that was my big decision to go with them. And they put me down as an analyst in Coffee Sugar Cocoa. So now I'm on the floor.
0: Incredible that you were able to do that, to to say, I'm going to end up there. And you did. What was the first day like?
1: You know, while I was working in the marketing firm, I was still teaching. So I would teach in the morning, and then I would put on makeup, get dressed, and go down to Wall Street to go to this job. So I was doing two jobs for a while. And then I finally quit school. And I have to say, I mean, my heart... Always stayed with special education to a degree, and it comes back into my life later on. So it was a bittersweet transition, but it was for me the best thing that could have, like I said, you said, the best trade I ever made, clearly. Well, that first day, whoa. I had to figure out a lot. It wasn't just, I knew nothing. I mean, Maggie, I knew nothing. I I didn't know what futures were. I didn't understand how they related to actual physical commodities. I didn't understand price structure. I didn't even know who the players were, what a local was, anything. But I was inquisitive, and I certainly stood out for obvious reasons. And I wasn't afraid to say, I know
0: nothing. Which is... A bold thing to say in the heat of what a commodity trading pit looks like. I mean, that is, that is not easy. I mean, it's hectic, there's a lot of testosterone, there's a lot of money on the line. I mean, these are intense places. People may not realize that because we don't have an open outcry anymore. But trading, I mean, we've seen the movie, right? But there's some truth in that. They're intense places.
1: They are, and it was also, um, although I always hate dating myself, it was when commodities was just going nuts. So it was the end of, just before in the start of 1980. So sugar had already traded up to 60 cents, and then at this point now was back down, but was going back up. Gold made its historic move up along with silver. And so I went down at the heyday of commodities. I mean, it's never come back since then, really, to that point like it was back then. So, I was also there at a very exciting time, which I think was good because the men that were down there were actually a, li- a little bit more generous. You know, people tend to be magnanimous when they're making money, and everybody was making buckets of money at that point. So, for me, little girl, to come down and say, hey, excuse me, because my job, by the way, was to get on the squawk box. So, yeah, let's set the scene. So you have about 75 guys in the pit. And the way the pit is, is, is a wooden circle. And then there's clerks inside the pit that are collecting these cards that the traders are filling out with. Yeah, they- it was also
0: paper. It was also paper back then. <laughs> there were
1: index cards. So you had a whole stack of index cards. And then if you made, let's say, you know, sold July sugar, you know, 500 contracts at whatever... You would write that down on the card, and you'd fling it into the middle of the pit. And then there would be layers of men, because the steps would be gradually higher, like a movie theater kind of thing. So there would be these layers of men standing around the pit, all yelling and screaming at the same time with a lot of hand signals. And then there were the clerks outside the pit that were on the phones, two phones at a time, that were collecting the orders from the institutional companies that would then run into the pit or scream from the phone, bye, blah, 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 blah. And so there was tons of activity going on. So I would have to go on the Squawk Box and tell the Conti commodities traders all around the world what was going on in sugar, coffee, and cocoa. And then I met a girl. There was another girl down there. She was a clerk. Her husband was the trader and she was doing point and figure charts. And she was like the calmest person down there. She was just like so calm. So I was immediately not only attracted to her because she was another female down there, but she was doing this charting and she had this really nice demeanor. Her name was Carol. And I started asking her, what are you doing? And she taught me how to point and figure chart. And then from there, once I understood the players and the price points and what volume meant and how orders were coming in, and now I could actually chart it for myself, that's really where the patterns really started to come into view for me. And I became very quickly known as one of the best chartists on the floor.
0: So you had a male mentor and a Zen master who helped you through exactly the first couple.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what I'm saying is karma, you know, just knowing, just le- you have to leave yourself out there and open in life to things. And one of the things you learn on the floor, besides all the wonderful things that you learn, about getting along with other people, about what happens in very stressful environments versus very gleeful environments, how you see the personalities of people, some people that self-destruct just because we're human beings and we tend to do that versus other people who thrive. To see all the relationships that you could have uh, based on the different personalities and really kind of figure out all of that. (music) The other thing that you learn on the floor really is the life lessons like cutting losses is not just about cutting your losses from a money standpoint. It's also about from all kinds of standpoint. And I really, would. it took me a long time, but it's such a great life lesson to just know when you're in something that doesn't feel right, get out quickly.
0: How is it that that came up when you're on the floor? I mean, are people talking about that. How, how is it that, or are you just watching the aftermath of people who didn't cut their laws?
1: Yes, a lot of it was observing. I mean, I was always a very kind of conservative type person. When I say conservative, I'm not talking about necessarily political conservatism. I'm being, as a person, yeah, careful, you know, because thoughtful. I, I, I was careful. I didn't, I didn't come from any money. I went down there with no money. I started trading by borrowing money from another clerk, by the way, who lent me $2,000. And I gave him his money back pretty quickly. So I was living in an apartment by myself. I didn't have any means behind me. I didn't have parents I could go to to back me up or any wealthy friends for that matter. I eventually made wealthy friends, but I would have never in a million years gone to anybody I knew on the floor to ask for help. So I was fiercely independent, but also very, very aware of the fact that I had to build up money before I could take any real chances. So anyway, this is a very long departure from our best trades, but it's a great story. No,
0: no, this, is, this all sets the scene. So let's go to the second trade. So your first big trade was trading in your teaching job to become a trader. Now let's get into your second trade. Set the scene for us. Where are you living and where are you working?
1: Okay, so I wanted my second trade really to be about you guys at Real Vision because you also were a pivotal point in my life that's been fantastic. So now we're going, we're going to go way up to 2018. So basically, I left the floor in 1994. I think I went down for a brief stint, and I actually went back into education for a while. I became a consultant. And what I started doing was working in school districts for middle and high school grades for full inclusion.
0: You loved the trading, you loved the floor, you loved that. What made you go back to education?
1: Well, commodities were dead. I was trying to have a baby and the doctor was, I was mad. Oh, by the way, another really good thing that happened to me on the floor, not that I was expecting this, but I met my husband. So, I mean, he and I have now been together for almost 36 years. So, Congratulations. That was a really good that's trade. A, that's <laughs> a really good trade.
0: Wow, got, well, we're going to put a little sidebar in as uh, one plus <laughs> yeah, right. the bonus trade. Kudos to Keith
1: Snyder, right. So anyway, I wanted to have a baby and the doctor suggested that perhaps the physicality mm-hmm. of me constantly being on my feet, Uh, and the stress involved was something I should think about not doing. And so I I left the floor and I did not have a baby, by Mm -hmm. the way, um, which is, I wouldn't call it a bad trade, it's just probably the biggest regret of my life, but um, it is what it is, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I wasn't ever going to be, again, from the floor, I learned these lessons, never be bitter and never be upset about the cards that you're dealt because there's a reason for everything. You may not know it at the time, but there's always a reason for everything. And I've really, I mean, I know there's a spiritual component to that. So now let's fast forward to 2018. There was a guy that was involved in Real Vision from the very beginning. And he knew about me from a conference I went to. And he had watched my videos. When I say videos, I was doing videos for actually the company, not like, media videos. Right, like training videos. Training videos and some of my webinars that I was doing, and he liked me. And he interviewed me at a, this conference in Florida, and he said to me, you know, I think you should be on Real Vision. I think they would really like you, so I'm like, okay, great, set it up. And to Real Vision's credit, they set it up immediately. We tend to do that.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we tend to do that when we when we find someone we like.
1: And you guys didn't know me very well. I certainly didn't know much about you, but I had never been on camera like that before. So I'll never forget, it was April 2018, and I got all dressed up, and I went into, I think you've changed studios in New York from then, but the original building that you had was like a sort of a lofty kind of space and you know, and there was like even a makeup room and I got myself all together and I went out and I sit down on the chair and I don't remember the name of the young lady who was the interviewer, but she was a young girl and I had sent her a bunch of notes. So they wrote me immediately and they said, wow, great notes, because that's my thing.
0: Yeah. Full disclosure, I said the same thing to Mish the first time I did an interview with you. You're my favorite guest. This is awesome because there's so much preparation. It was fantastic.
1: Right. Well, here's the teacher in me. Exactly. uh, Right. So I sent them notes on, they wanted the trade, my pick, my trade pick. So I picked 3D Systems and I had like four pages of notes of why I thought it was a good stock. So I get through the interview with her and she looks at me and she says, Mish, is there anything about this stock that would make you change your mind? And I said, no. (laughs) Total (laughs) conviction. And we think it was a 10-bagger. It literally doubled from 10 to 20. And then the, I think this is the only time Real Vision ever did it, but they gave me the award for the best stock pick Of the year and I was flabbergasted by that because you guys interview some really well-known successful traders. We do. And I'm like, here's this, you know, like a little girl. I still think of myself as the little girl from Queens, you know, winning this award and I was like, wow. So I realized two things. One is I was pretty good on camera. I was very well poised. It didn't seem to disturb me at all. I wasn't nervous. And number two is when I look into the camera lens, I get such a focus that it filters out everything else that often what comes out of my mouth turns out to be really good
0: information. So your second best trade was realizing you had a bright future in media and capitalizing off that by making great stock picks on channels like Real Vision and Bloomberg let's transition now to some of the trades you wish you could have back. Are there any disappointments?
1: I wanted to really think about the worst trade. And I have to tell you, I've had losers. I mean, anybody who says they haven't had losers is lying, out and out lying. That's not even possible. But what I've never done has been so hard hit by any particular loser. I've had strings of losers that happens like that. But even that's in such a controlled fashion. And I have like a number in my head on the basis of how much money we have in the portfolio of how much I'm willing to lose before I start to put myself sort of in the penalty Mm -hmm. box until I rethink things. But it doesn't happen to me very often because I've been doing this for so long. What I'll do instead is cut my position sizing down or shorten the risk a little bit or widen the risk. So now let's talk about the worst trades. My worst trades are not the trades I've lost on necessarily, because I always do it with control. The worst Mm. trades are the ones that I don't take. And that's really where the nemesis of traders comes into play, fear. Fear of being wrong, or sometimes fear of being right, believe it or not, because we're much more programmed to fail than we are to succeed. What do you mean by that? Well, think about our DNA. If you go back to like the beginning of time of man, what's our DNA? Our DNA is to survive and constantly be looking around our backs because we're going to, you know, when are we going to be plagued by disease or a a dinosaur woolly mammoth or whatever it is. You know, we come from our DNA is really to survive and not thrive. That's really our DNA. And I think we've evolved, obviously, to a degree, but I often wonder how much we've evolved because we still have that same DNA, you know, that fight-or-flight kind of thing that happens, that comes back from caveman days.
0: We're always looking looking for disaster around the corner.
1: And we're very comfortable with failure. We are way more comfortable with failure, oddly enough, than we are with success. Why? Because we have sort of that idea that if things are going well, we're waiting for a shoe to drop. It can't last, can't possibly last. So, you know, when people constantly pray for things to go well, it mostly comes from the point that they expect that they don't deserve the success for whatever reason, or it can't possibly last for them for whatever reason.
0: Mm, That's so interesting.
1: And I see it in traders all the time. They cut their winners way too fast and they keep their losers running way too long. And that's because they live on some kind of hope that things are going to turn around, and yet they can't believe that they're actually making money. So when I say go back to the worst trade, I've missed so many great trades because, well, sometimes it's just because I'm tired. <laughs> I mean, that certainly comes into play. And I'm like, oh, god. I mean, I'm, I just don't want to deal with another loss. You know, there's that kind of thing in case I'm wrong. And that's really, I think, really, you just have to keep going. You just have to keep trading and trading and trading, but always do it with that risk control. And then when you're right, instead of cutting your winner, adding to the winner, doing the opposite, now adding some leverage to that particular position because you're making money on it, still control the risk, move the risk up, obviously. So whatever you put on initially doesn't turn into a loss and you just have risk on the Mm. ad. But that's the way to make money in this business.
0: Do you think that you've become more risk-averse as you've gotten more experience? You talked about getting to the pit and not knowing any difference. Sometimes you can take big risks when you don't realize the consequence. Do you think you've become more risk-averse? Or with experience, do you think you trust your gut more and you're more confident and more able to take risk?
1: I think the latter. You know, my biggest criticism of myself from my floor days was that my biggest problem was that I was afraid to make money. Mm. And so that's why I know about this idea of the DNA and how you're afraid of success more than you're afraid of failure, and that having made some real legendary calls on the floor in my day and not really capitalizing on them and watching other people do really well, I mean, that was always my biggest... um, Were you
0: afraid to make money because you grew up financially insecure, or did you not deserve it, or... You know, it's a good question. I I
1: think partly I I definitely was financially insecure. Um, I also think that it's very scary to change your definition of yourself from, you know, I identified with being basically poor for so long that to all of a sudden say, to identify as a successful person means a lot of shift, not just in yourself, but even how people react to you. And and it's interesting, you know, I'm being really honest here, but I don't really know how to be anything but really honest. But even with this media thing, seeing how people are reacting to me now, because I'm on CNBC and Fox and Bloomberg and TD Ameritrade and Yahoo Finance and Real Vision, and seeing how people react to me now, I'm having to shift a little bit in myself too, to to, to not let that get into my head because there's a guilt that we have about being successful way more than we have a guilt about being a failure. So getting back to the point of the worst trade and all of this other stuff, I think what happens is, is just go, I go, nah, you know what? I'll just watch it. Now I say to myself, so it's not about risk adversity. I'm not as concerned about it because I, I see I've, I've been tried and tested. I've gone through bad markets, good markets. So you know you're
0: good. That's not what it is.
1: Yes. I know that I'm good and I know that and I know a lot of people trust me. Mm. And so that's also you know, a thing is when people trust you, you want to make sure that you live up to that trust. But it's really more like, oh, I couldn't possibly be right on this one. And then you don't do it. But recently, I will go on the news and I'll say something, and then I don't do it. And then I watch the trade turn into
0: a tremendous win. For so many other people. There's a difference about being a a participant and then being in the arena, though, right? Exactly. (laughs) The fourth and last trade I want to ask you about, or trading aspect, I think is a better way to put it. Do you ever get emotionally attached to some of your ideas? That's another one. I always hear people say, you don't want to get married to your narrative. And then other people say, you have to be married to your narrative. You can't make decisions without emotions. How do you handle that? And is there a downside to that for you sometimes? Like, Have you gotten too in love with the trade and and had a hard time giving it up?
1: No, that's never happened to me. There have been trades I've gave up that I'm sorry that I gave up because I know I'm going to be right at some point. But money management always prevails. Again, I am—I have real people's money on the line, not only our members, which I feel very responsible to, but we also have a registered investment advisory. So I'm the discretionary trader. Which means, you know, this is real money on the line of other people other than myself. When I was a local on the floor, I should have been much more carefree than I was, but I was still young and inexperienced. So, no, that's never happened. Never happened. But sometimes you just get unlucky. So, like, for example, I know you and I have talked about this trade, Beyond Meat, which I always has, you know, I, I had a great trade. And again, Real Vision When on Real Vision. This is with uh, Max. I went on with Max, and he said, give me your trade. And I said, oh, Beyond Meat. And at the point, I think it was trading at like 75. And I said, you buy it now. And it went up like in two weeks. It went from 75 to 175. (laughs) It's a big jump. I know, and I look like a genius again. So you know that can sort of stay in your head. So I started buying Beyond. I didn't buy it again until it went down to about 115. I bought it 115, got stopped out. Bought it again, like 110, got stopped out. Bought it a third time. I will pro by the way. The third time I should have learned my lesson that it wasn't moving up, it came out with third quarter expectations as worse and it got downgraded. So the big deal was that instead of having my controlled risk of a half to 1%, I think I lost 2% on the trade. And when I say 2%, I mean of the overall equity that we use as a portfolio benchmark. That's it.
0: So, it wasn't the money loss. Why do you remember that trait of all the ones you put on? Because I watch Beyond Meat like it's
1: like my job. You know, I'm obsessed with that. Why stuff. Why are you obsessed? Because I really do believe that it's a mega trend that is going to emerge more and more. But I, I you know, I want to say one thing that you asked me the question is well, uh, one thing I've learned from all, you know, now that I'm on the media all the time, I often have co panelists. So I get to hear some pretty very well-respected traders Mm -hmm. and what they think. And it's interesting how many traders out there have what they call their buy and hold portfolio, which is something I've never entertained in my life. I'm not a buy and hold type of trader. And now I'm starting to think, well, maybe there's something to that if you use the timing, like waiting for these massive corrections. And instead of having a particular stop, you know doing a much smaller position and having some kind of like bottom line like point of you know pain that you can't handle anymore but actually looking at this more from what is really good value here that we would look to more buy and hold hmm. and i haven't done that yet but what really the moral of that story is at this point in my career and it's been over 40 years the fact that you can still learn from other people is extremely important because one should never think that you've learned everything, that you know everything. It it doesn't exist in this business. The dynamics are constantly changing. And I'm kind of excited about entertaining that notion. I haven't started doing that yet, but I've been thinking about it.
0: You know, what's interesting. You say that I would flip it and say that it's evidence that you have a real growth mindset, and I wonder how much that contributes to your success because I also know that you recently have added crypto and have been looking at crypto and sort of learning all about that. That's not a market that you were in before and yet you're kind of diving into it very enthusiastically.
1: Oh yeah, but now Metaverse is another one that I'm really thrilled about and actually learned today. So and this is where really, it's great to have a young staff learn today that um, some toy stores are gonna be like Target, Uh, for example, is going to be selling toys that you can also get an NFT image of the toy. And so Holden said to me this morning, wow, look at this story. And I think we should go out and buy some of those stores. Of course, it could turn out to be like the Beanie Babies and the Cabbage Patch dolls. But nonetheless, it's kind of a fun thing. So yeah, it's really, I love all this new technology that's coming out. And I love the whole crypto space. And yeah, it just took a little bit of a dive, but it got super oversold. So I'm back hunting again.
0: But you know, Mish, it's interesting you say that. If we go back to the guy in the pit, he saw you, the guy who didn't like your charts, and was like, my world is changing. You just described a scenario where you're like, the world is changing, isn't it great? It's a completely different mindset.
1: Completely different mindset, but that's, you have to be like that, not just in trading. That's why trading is the ultimate metaphor for everything in life. You have to know when to cut your loss, you have no one to ride your winners, you have to know to keep an open mind, you have to look for the signs from the universe, and you have to be able to know that if something is stagnating, there's probably a good reason for it. If something has momentum, there's probably a good reason for it. And then when that changes, you have to be very adept and quick and nimble to change along with it. If you think about life, that's exactly what life is all
0: about. Do you think that you are destined to be a trader? I think so. I think
1: so. You know, everything that I love doing in life has really come to the surface here. I really, I actually started doing community theater in Santa Fe. So I did get on stage, which is something I never did in my whole life, except like when I was seven years old. And so I love performing. I love trading. I love teaching. I love writing. I love people. And so if you look at all of that, I cannot imagine anything else in life that I could be doing that would really not only sate all of my passions in life, but actually kind of make a difference, which is really what I've wanted to do is help people. I I was born with putting my dolls around my room and teaching them as a kid. And now the dolls around my room are, you know, all the people I get to talk to and try to give them some sense of reality and, and some kind of way to think about the markets, which hopefully helps them.
0: And it's come full circle, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah, and I never had children, so, you
1: know, what's my legacy? And you never want, you know, people to go to your funeral and say, oh, Mish, she made so much money. You want people to go to a funeral and go, wow, Mish did so much good for people in her niche. And, you know, that's really, to me, the ultimate gift that God gave me without giving me the children to bear
0: along with it. And I think we learned so much from you today, Mish. Thank you so much for being here. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss one of our conversations. I'm Maggie Lake. We'll see you next time. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.